Hi, everybody. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Sr. And I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And we're both here today for Prophecy Today weekend. So glad to have you along. Jim Jr. is going to be joining me at the microphone on this broadcast because right now, Judy and I are on the road doing VCY America radio rallies. Last night, we were in Madison, Wisconsin. Today's a travel day, and as soon as the broadcast is over, we're going to take off and travel about 450 miles over to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This is a great opportunity for the Ministry of Prophecy today, and we're having a great time as we travel from location to location, meeting some of the many listeners to the broadcast. Jim, I have you coming on board to help us out today, so I understand it. We have some Prophecy Q&A upcoming in just a moment. Uh, Do you have a good question or two for me? I do, Dad. We've got a great question on Iran and one about the people that lived during the Millennial Kingdom. Well, that's great. We'll get to those in just a few moments right here on Prophecy Today. Jim Jr. will also be interviewing David James. I normally have a weekly conversation with him, but this time it's Jim and Dave. Keep the dial set right where it is. All of our broadcast partners are available, ready for me to have a conversation with them. Right now, we're going to Ken Timmerman. Ken is the man who looks at geopolitical activities around the world, helping us to understand the details behind these current events. Then we can determine how they fit into the prophetic scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. Ken, I saw a article entitled, Did Donald Trump Do What President Obama Could Not Do? And it was relating with North Korea and the meeting, the summit earlier this week between Trump and Kim. I'm going to have in a moment Colonel Bob McGinnis, who is at the Pentagon, going to give us about... Uh, maybe 10 minutes of information on this summit that did took place, what he thinks the ramifications are basically militarily. But from your perspective, was Donald Trump able to do something no other president has ever done? And what do you think about, was it successful or not? Well, it, it was a remarkable achievement. First of all, he sat down with a dictator who just months ago was threatening to destroy America. Obama never sat down with the Iranian dictator or or any other dictator, for that matter, and negotiated an actual deal that included hard commitments to get rid of the threats that they were posing to us. And Trump did this almost solely on the basis of his personality and his experience as a businessman, as a dealmaker. All of the professional politicians and the professional foreign policy so-called experts were saying he couldn't do it. This had to be worked for months, if not years in advance, by the experts at the State Department. So Trump really achieved things that no other president has achieved, and he did it through the strength of his character and really the, the genius of his approach to national affairs and foreign policy. Yes, that's exactly right. That's the positive of what came out of it. We'll have to see if indeed it's going to be successful, so we'll stay on top of the story with you, Ken, as you continue to watch it. The Israeli government is reporting that their F-35 which is a stealth jet fighter, entered the Iranian airspace, and then unnoticed they locked onto some major targets there in Iran. Have you heard about this? And boy, this is pretty advanced operation. Well, and they're not mistaken, it's not 
actually the Israeli government that has officially announced this. These are sources close to or something like that. I, you know, I don't know. The F-35 certainly, certainly gives Israel new capabilities, uh, and it uh, has certainly put the Iranians on edge, the Syrians on edge. Uh, they have not been able to track these aircraft when they have been used by Israel, and Israel has acknowledged using them in Syria. And they've done that without being tracked and without suffering any damage. Well, we'll watch that story to see what develops and see what the real truth is. And I'm glad that Ken's on top of it to help us understand the truth. Ken, the Iranians seemingly are defying. I'm not talking about the leadership. I'm talking about the people in the street. They're defying their regime, and they're doing it on Twitter, and they're showing great support for Israel. What do you know about that? This is really a wonderful development. This happened, uh, this event you're referring to happened on what the Iranian regime calls Quds Day, Jerusalem Day, when they celebrate the Palestinian movements and, and the defeat of Israel, and they bus in regime supporters from all over the country, and those crowds are shrinking almost right before your eyes. I remember watching one of them when Ahmadinejad was still president, and from the Iranian state TV's perspective, it looked like the main square in Tehran, where it was being held, was completely jammed packed with people. Then there was a cutaway to look at the crowd, and it was almost completely empty, the square. So now what you have are Iranians who, on the same day as this Jerusalem Day protest or solidarity demonstration, were tweeting, we stand with Israel as a hashtag. It's unclear how many of the people who did that uh, were actually in Iran itself, but the Twitter accounts were all in Persian for the most part. And Persian is, is you know, one of the big languages of the Internet, and especially on Twitter. At one point a couple of years ago, it was the second language after English. So young Iranians have really taken to social media. They are unafraid to use social media. And in this particular case, they were unafraid to directly defy the regime. I think that's a, really a, an amazing achievement and something that uh, portends well for the future of the people of Iran in standing up to this regime. I think things are going to move inside Iran over the next year. And I agree completely, 100%. Let's stay on Iran. That focus just for a moment. President Trump's new Middle East agenda seems to be Iran before the Palestinians. In other words, we're going to take care of the threat to Israel, and then we'll deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, that's right. And there are many very good reasons for doing so. The first is that Iran it poses a clear and present danger, not just to Israel, but to the United States. They continue to threaten America. They continue to develop capabilities, both nuclear capabilities, EMP, electromagnetic pulse capabilities that we've discussed on this broadcast, and long-range missiles that could do just extensive, horrific damage to the United States should they ever launch them. So Iran is a danger to us as well as to our best ally, Israel. So, of course, it makes sense to deal with them first. But beyond that, you know, why should the President of the United States pay even a lip service, let alone visit with Palestinian leaders who 
continue to show that they have no interest and no desire to make peace with Israel. All they want is to demonstrate their political clout or their international clout, uh, get this international left-wing anti-Israel BDS uh, anti-Semitic movement going to fuel it with their rhetoric, with their rock-throwing, with their demonstrations. I think the president is right to ignore them completely until the Palestinian leadership shows the first inkling of a desire to make peace with Israel, something that they have not done ever. Can we often focus on Turkey and Tayyip Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey? He has an upcoming election in June, I think, is the 24th of this month. I've got to ask you, he seems like he's in a fight for his political life. The race is really tightening up. What do you know? Well, Bloomberg did a, a survey, the first one by a Western news agency inside Turkey recently. It showed Erdogan with just over 50%, 50.8%, I think, and his nearest competitor was 30%. Uh, there are four, four of them, I believe, running. And what happens if one person does not get a clear 50% majority in the first round? There will be a second round. And, and then there will just be two competitors, and I think Erdogan will clearly win that one with a large number, perhaps 70 75% of the vote. So I don't think he's really endangered. Where, where it becomes more interesting is in the parliament, because there are different blocks in parliament. In addition to his AK party, there's a nationalist party, there's a pro-Kurdish party, and then there's sort of a liberal party as well. And Erdogan needs to forge a majority. He can do so easily according to this latest opinion poll, just by uniting the votes of his own party and the nationalist Turkish party. Uh, and frankly, I, I would call this a step towards fascism. Uh, Turkey is clearly on the road to Islamo-fascism as a state, as state policy, and I think that was Erdogan's intent in calling these elections. It was to solidify his own base, to solidify his coalition, and to get buy-in from, in particular, the Nationalist Party to his agenda, which is anti-American, uh, anti-Kurdish for sure, from time to time pro-Iranian, and very definitely anti-Israel. Yeah, and wanting to revive the old Ottoman Empire and for he himself to become the new Kayla. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. We'll stay on top of that story with Ken as well. Well, one final thought for you, Ken. Bashar Assad, president of Syria, saying that he wants the permanent bases of Iran to stay in Syria. That's not good for Israel. Maybe good for Bashar Assad, but not for the Jewish state. Well, this is going to get interesting because the Russians have said, and they, by the way, control Syrian airspace and pretty much control Assad in a big picture sense. The Russians have said they don't want foreign troops in Syria, in particular the Iranians. The Iranians have said we're going to stay, but Assad has said the Iranians are my best allies, my, my strategic partners. I want them to stay. So the Russians' attitude is going to become very key as we go forward, and it's quite possible that the Russians could seek some kind of condominium with the United States in the Euphrates Valley, first of all, to prevent ISIS from coming back, but second of all, to prevent the Iranians from posing a challenge, a direct military challenge to Israel, as they have been recently with those bases right up on Israel's border in Syria. And that. That's what the Israelis are most concerned about, uh, are those Iranians who, who are right up on their border near the Golan Heights and moving into Lebanon as well. So this is one to watch. Uh, I think Assad's going to lose this fight. Uh, I think the Russians are going to prevail and gradually force the Iranians to, to uh, leave Syria. But, you know, as President Trump says, we'll have to see. 
We'll have to see, and we'll do that with a man named Ken Timmerman, who is our broadcast partner looking at geopolitical activities. Great report, Ken. Thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. Good to see you. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan has his Middle East news update for us. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, here in Temporary Studios in Wisconsin, up in farm country. We're on a 12-day tour, as we talked about 12 cities and 12 different locations, and I'm preaching and teaching the prophetic Word of God. After the broadcast today, we take off. We've got about a 450-mile journey over to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So pray for us as we continue on up through Wednesday night this next week. Great opportunity to meet some of our listeners and also have the privilege of preaching and teaching the Word of God. Well, we're going to continue now with Prophecy Today weekend. Our broadcast partner, David Dolan, is a man who covers the area of the world that is so key to Bible prophecy. We're talking about the Middle East. Now, David's been a journalist in this region of the world for over 30 years. He has great insight. And David, let me just talk. There's so much to talk about. I want to get to it in a moment, but let me talk about an evacuation of a Jewish settlement. Actually, it was not the entire settlement. It was only about 15 homes, but the headline in the Jerusalem Post Is this going to be the last battle or a start of a new war, which possibly could be the case if they try to evacuate many of these Jewish settlers like it 
did happen back in 2005. Talk about this with us. What is this as it relates to the Jewish people and the settlers there in Israel? Well, Jimmy, I have to say first off that it's a fairly isolated situation in that um, it's got unique circumstances. The legality of the building of the homes was in question. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has said all along that he will dismantle any settlements, any communities that are put up without any government control or authorization. In other words, it's sort of a repeat of the practice that took place in the 1920s and 30s where when the British were still on the land and overnight a kibbutz would appear suddenly. A wire would go up in a few buildings and the next morning they would announce, here's a community. Well, that had the backing of the Jewish leaders of the land at the time, that sort of action, because there was no other way to establish Jewish communities uh, in those days, really. Uh, It was almost impossible under the mandate. Well, today, of course, there's an Israeli government, and even though Israeli law is not complete in Judea and Samaria, yet it is in many areas, and it's divided into three different sections. We could go into all the weeds there, but that's part of the Oslo Accords. The Palestinians do control some of the area completely. Israel still controls some of it completely, and some of it's in between. This settlement was in between, and it didn't have the authorization. So what Netanyahu says is we will make sure that whatever goes up there is legal. But he again repeated, Jimmy, that those communities that are long established, that the Israeli governments of the time, most of them labor governments, actually, as he has pointed out many times back in the 60s and 70s after the Six-Day War uh, that oversaw the setting up of communities, those were approved, they are approved, they'll continue to exist, and there'll be no threat against them. That's what he's saying. But this, of course, didn't go over very well with many of the settlers, and they do fear that possibly as any final peace deal, Netanyahu might be forced by the international community to uh, do the same thing to communities that he's previously said would remain. We're not looking at another Gaza situation, Jimmy. Of course, Netanyahu was totally opposed to the entire withdrawal of the Jewish community, 8,000-plus people from Gaza in 2005, that done under the late Ariel Sharon. He predicted Hamas would take over eventually and would use it as a staging ground for attacks upon Israel on a regular basis, which, of course, is exactly uh, what's been happening even in recent days, as we've been talking about. Although there is in that same headline, is this just the end game, or is it the beginning of a brand new battle? And there are a number of Jewish settlers that do not want to be evacuated. They're concerned this could be a precedent-setting type of an operation. We'll stay on top of that story. There was a surprise call-up of the Israeli Defense Force Reservists this week, reminding everybody that when a young person, a young man, young woman joins the Israeli Defense Force, the men especially have to serve until they're 45 years of age and they're on call even after they've done their full-time three years of duty in the Israeli Defense Force. This surprise reserve call-up, bringing the men from and their women from their homes, from their places of work, going to the northern part of the state of Israel. Quite interesting They say it was a drill, but it could have been the real thing, could it not have? Well, Jimmy, it's very rare in recent years to have surprise, unannounced call-ups. So, yes, that alone is significant. Of course, it came after a week-long Air Force 
uh, massive exercise. You asked me last week about U.S. involvement in the area, and it's been confirmed that there was deeper U.S. involvement in those war games that were played, if, as you were, around uh, the area there. But that was massive. And then immediately on Sunday morning after that ended, we got this reserve call up. And again, the men and women, mostly men, but some women as well, as you noted, uh, had no idea this was coming. Sunday is the beginning of the work week in Israel, unlike uh, here in the United States and most of the West. So people were preparing to go to work, go to school, do, do whatever they do in the day, and they get this emergency call-up notice. Well, it's to test how quickly the men and women respond, how quickly they get up to their bases. This was up in the Golan Heights, which, I mean, no coincidence this is happening now because of, as we've been talking, the Iranians and the Syrians have been building up forces along the northern Golan border on the Syrian side. The Assad regime says it's going to take back areas that Arab rebels have taken. They call them rebels. They're Sunni Muslims that uh, want the Assad minority regime out of power, but They've taken Kinetra and some of the areas right along the Golan border, and as serious as they're going to get it back, Israel's war, no way. This is too close to our border. We're not going to allow this action. Uh, a lot of reports that Iranian troops dressed as Syrian soldiers have been joining in the buildup. So there's still a buildup there. Jimmy, the situation in Korea, though, they're saying in Israel may have changed the dynamic there. One of Iran's closest allies, of course, is North Korea. They've gotten a lot of their nuclear material from North Korea over the years, a lot of their know-how. Syria's had strong North Korean support. They were building a nuclear reactor for Syria when Israel destroyed that in 2006. So very tense situation, and certainly at the very least, this surprise call-up was meant to say to the other side, we're here, we're watching, we can mobilize quickly, and just watch what you do, because we're ready to respond in a moment. And of course, that's what Prime Minister Netanyahu and other Israeli officials are constantly saying. You know, David, you just mentioned the North Korean situation, uh, that summit, of course, between Trump and Kim taking place earlier in the week. Israel seems to be benefiting from that. They're saying to Iran, pay attention. You see how Trump handled North Korea? They could do the same thing with you. That's good for Israel, is it not? Jimmy, they're just rejoicing that they have someone like Donald Trump as opposed to Barack Obama in the helm of the United States at the moment. Not that Israel has that. It was American voters. But nevertheless, uh, they see a whole different change of tone. And yes, Israel's whole method of survival is deterrence. Deterrence, deterrence. Uh, a tiny country, once again, the size of New Jersey in in land space. Uh, Iran is, I think, 160 times the size in land. Uh, Turkey, we've mentioned all this, all the countries around, massively larger populations. There's about now, I think, 450 million Muslims just in the countries surrounding Israel in, in the area there. We're including Saudi Arabia and some others there, uh, as opposed to 8 million Jews. So they're just vastly outnumbered, and the way they survive is to deter. If you touch us, we're going to come back tenfold. We're going to make sure you're destroyed. And it was during that Gulf War in 91 when the U.S. sat on Yitzhak Shamir's hands to not respond to Saddam's scuds 
that Israel felt it lost a lot of its deterrence. So they're not going to do that again. But yes, they feel that the uh, direction in North Korea, if it holds, of course, nobody knows if it's real yet or not, but we'll see. But just even the possibility that they would give up their nuclear weapons and would do so clearly under international sanctions and pressure, the sort of thing that's been applied to Iran, has to be something the Iranians are watching. And again, they're close allies with North Korea as well. So the Israelis are happy for that. Nevertheless, as I said last week and the week before, Jimmy, the Iranians are there. They're right on the Israeli border. It's taken them five years to build up this force inside of Syria, uh, ostensibly to help the Syrian regime, and they've done that, but mainly to carry on with their jihad to destroy. And again, they say that all the time. They've said in the last week again to wipe out the Jewish state. And their days may be numbered there in Iran with Russia getting pressure from the U.S. and Israel and others to send the Iranians home now. The war is winding down. It may be that they feel this is their last shot, and the situation along that border is still extremely tense. And that call-up was meant to say, we're here, we're ready, and we can come get you back at a moment's notice if we need to. And uh, that is the current situation. Rough neighborhood where Israel is located and surrounded by 450 million enemies who want to destroy them, ready to do that at any moment. That's why we have David Dolan give us a Middle East news update each and every week. Great report, David. Thank you so very much. Talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I have Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon. We're going to be talking about that Trump-Kim summit, what his thoughts are of how it may play out. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy D. Young, I'm in temporary studios, as I've already told you, someplace in Wisconsin. Somebody asked me, was I near the North Pole? No, but we can actually see it from here. We're actually in a place called Hillsboro, Wisconsin. This is the campground for VCY America. For 12 days, and we started six days ago, we've got six more to go. For 12 days, Judy and I have been traveling from one city to another, one rally, a radio rally for VCY America each evening. 
And uh, we're going to have a travel day today after the broadcast is over. And because we're on Central Time, it goes earlier. Then we're going to travel about 450 miles, be going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We'll be at a church in the morning and then go over to Mitchell, South Dakota on Sunday evening. Monday, another travel day, and we end up going down to the Village Bible Church in Salina, Kansas. And then we conclude with everything. First Southern Baptist Church in Fort Scott, Kansas. Pray for us as we travel. It's been a tedious task, but it's been exciting. A number of people came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And, of course, we love ECY America. I'm on there, and I'm on many stations, about 1,500 across America. But this is one of our favorite networks, and we're so thrilled that we could be with them. I guess I should not say favorite. Every one of them that carries our broadcast, that's our favorite network. We're working for VCY America at this time. Well, I mentioned we're going to have Colonel Bob McGinnis from the White House, and Bob is getting ready, packing up, headed out to Hawaii. Is that a true, Colonel McGinnis? Uh, that's true, Jimmy. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, vacation time. I'll be inside talking to people about um, uh, how we engage with militaries around the Pacific Rim. Well, that's an interesting trip. And in fact, you'll still have an hour or so after the meetings, probably. Tough duty for the colonel there. Normally, you'd catch him at the Pentagon. We'd catch him at his home just prior to his trip leaving for Hawaii. Bob, I wanted to have you on the broadcast because we talked before about the Trump and Kim conference, the summit there in Singapore. Now that it's over, I wanted to reflect with you about some of the activities that took place, what the substance of it was, etc., First of all, the Trump-Kim summit has been labeled by some, and especially by the president, a success. Now, do you agree, or what are your thoughts as we open up this conversation? Well, Jimmy, like a lot of Americans, I watched the president's live broadcast press conference uh, immediately following the meeting he had with Kim Jong-un. And, you know, he was very positive, very upbeat. He has uh, said subsequently that um, it appears as if the nuclear threat is gone, that this guy's going to cooperate and so forth. I'm a bit uh, skeptical at this point until I see some tangible results of that. Now, the fact that uh, Kim has released three Korean Americans, that's good. Uh, He eliminated uh, the test site, which was already collapsing, that's good. He promised to destroy one of the test sites, and that's good. There are a host of these issues that indicate that he might be willing to cooperate. But for 70 years, we've had a very tense relationship. They've killed a lot of our people. They've you know, seized things. They've made the entire region very, very on edge. And so, I, you know, pardon me for being at least a little skeptical at this point, because I want to wait and see that he does begin denuclearization, which the president says he will do. And if he does that, then that's great news, and we can move to the next step and hopefully help the North Korean people to join the rest of the world. Bob, in reality, is this a new era with North Korea, or do you believe it's simply empty promises? Well, in 1993 and 2000, 2009, 2012, uh, like the proverbial situation where Lucy holds a football, and Charlie Brown tries to kick it, she always pulls it out. Uh, you know, Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, uh, and his grandfather were both 
very foxy in terms of how they dealt with the West. Uh, I hope that this is not the case. But remember, Jimmy, seven months ago, we thought we were going to go to war with North Korea. Uh, they had just exploded a hydrogen bomb. They had been missile tests and threatening with their ICBMs to hit the U.S. and Guam. They have been nothing but a headache and a, a real serious problem. Now, I, I do believe that they are nothing more than a proxy of the people in Beijing. And I do believe that uh, Vladimir Putin sent Sergei Lavrov over there, you know, immediately prior to when Kim went down to Singapore to meet with Trump to talk to the young man, to mentor him, and say, look, this is what you're getting into. And now, of course, there, there are more follow-on meetings. He's, he's off to talk to Putin in Moscow. That is predictable. That is worrisome. I know uh, what their agenda is. It's well-published, and in fact, uh, my book, uh, Alliance of Evil, that comes out uh, this summer, addresses the very serious threat posed by both of those nations and how they're working in concert and how these types of proxy wars are going to lead to some very troubling future times. You're talking about that Alliance of Evil. That's your new book coming out this summer. Love to have a pre-published or pre-distributed copy of it so we could prepare and do a, another interview with you down the line and see if we can help promote that. And in light of that, then, talk to me about China and Russia. Has the risk to both of these countries, and in particular China, been reduced at all because of the summit? Well, of course. You know, what the, one of the last things the president... Uh, said, and I'll probably be on Fox News here shortly, um, on the topic of saying we're going to stop exercises, and there's been talk of reducing or withdrawing our forces from Korea. All they've been, essentially, has been a tripwire. And when we don't practice with our allies, we jeopardize our readiness to go to war. And that's exactly what Red China wants. They don't want us in their neighborhood, because you know President Xi has already promised that in a short period, he has every intention of retaking Taiwan. Uh, he doesn't want to see a, a more militarized Japan. You know, Japan only has to spend 1% more of its GDP and, and be one of the more powerful nations in the world. Uh, and they've had a very troubled history over the last century. And so, you know, Beijing is watching closely there. And, of course, they're watching us. There are so many things that are taking place, Jimmy, that... You know, we could be easily distracted by uh, this you know, young, uh, I would say, irresponsible tyrant in Pyongyang and really miss the fact that the elephant in the living room here is China. And the things that they are doing, which are just phenomenal, most Americans have no clue about, are very frightening. And I think they could be uh, a prelude, certainly a proxy for what you know, could become the end times. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Those kings of the East, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12 in North Korea would be one of those kings. I know President Trump went into the meeting wanting to set up a roadmap for North Korean denuclearization. Is that possible in the future from where you see everything happening? Well, it's possible, but something like that is going to take probably at least a decade uh, if they're very serious about it. If they come to the table at the first negotiations and we say, well, we want to know where all your stuff is, and they try to pull the wool over our eyes, because we know with pretty good 
precision where a lot of it is. And if they try to fool us, then we'll know they aren't serious. So I, I think it's a matter of maybe a few months before you know, we really begin to understand uh, the intent of Kim Jong-un and, of course, his mentors in Beijing and Moscow. But a very serious time. Uh, I don't think we should put our guard down whatever. Well, let me ask you then, because in a follow-up question to I asked about Trump, what about Kim? What is he really seeking out of this summit meeting? Well, ultimately, he wants unification of North and South Korea. That's something his father and grandfather espoused, and he has as well. That would have you know, major ramifications, and of course, he wants to be the leader. Uh, I don't see that as a possibility, certainly in the near term. He also wants general recognition. He's going to take all the video and the photo op that he got with the President of the United States and use that for his own promotion, uh, which is good for him. He wants us out of there in terms of our military, because he has a million-man military, and he has you know, nasty weapons, not just nuclear, but he has biological and chemical weapons, which no one is really talking about, but he's uh, demonstrated his willingness and he, you know, to use those, you know, he killed one of his half-brothers with it down in uh, Malaysia. Uh, so you have these things that are on the plate. Now, he, of course, he wants to be rich. He wants all our goodies. Uh, at the same time, he, he really doesn't have any intention of giving up all nuclear programs, uh, much like Iran. Uh, he wants nuclear energy. He wants it for medical reasons, for experimental reasons, and the like. But like Iran, I suspect he'll do everything he can to secure himself and his regime by holding fast to at least some of these, much like Bashar Assad held on to chemicals and, and the Russians swore up and down that they were gone. And what did we find out in the last two years that he pulled them out of some secret hiding place and used them against the Kurds and his own people, etc.? I just remembered that the book of First Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, exhorts Christians, and Bob is a born-again believer, I love Jesus as my Lord and Savior as well, uh, that First Timothy exhorts Christians to pray for those that are in higher authority. So, of course, we need to pray for President Trump and Kim himself, and pray that uh, this summit and the results of it will work out great. Let me just ask this final question of you, Bob. What if it does not come together? What could happen then? Well, I think that uh, we could pick up where we were seven months ago, Jimmy. We were on a pathway to war. You know, this young man threatened the United States with nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. Uh, nothing to sneeze at. He threatened the South. He threatened Japan. Now, of course, the Chinese don't want that. The Chinese have no desire to have this mad dog on a short leash right on its periphery. Uh, it has larger plans, more geopolitical and global plans, and this is a nuisance at this particular point. They'll use him as best as they can, and I think you know, if they can use him to get rid of the U.S. out of the region, then it gives it a much easier pathway toward hegemonic control of the entire region, much like they control the South China Sea and are seeking to control the East China Sea much less also Taiwan. Colonel Bob McGinnis, one of our broadcast partners, helping us to understand, giving us an analysis from his perspective as he works at the Pentagon in strategy and is traveling even as we get finished with the broadcast out to Hawaii uh, to do consultation with the armies around the world.
Great analysis, Bob. Thank you so much for being available. Have a safe trip out to Hawaii. I wish I was going along to carry your bags, but not this time, maybe in the future. Thank you so much. We'll talk again down the line, hoping to be able to interview you about your new coming book. Thank you, Jimmy. Very interesting conversation with Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon. His insights into the summit between Donald Trump and the dictator of North Korea, Mr. Kim himself. We'll have to watch very closely to see how that develops. We'll do it with both Bob McGinnis and many other of our broadcast partners as well. Right now, though, we're going to go to that region of the world that is key in understanding Bible prophecy. I'm talking about Europe and the European Union itself. I do believe the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. And my broadcast partner who reports on the European Union believes the same. He's done extensive study in Bible prophecy as it relates to the European Union, having lived there in Brussels, Belgium for many, many years, the headquarters for the European Union, brings us valuable information as we discuss current events around this world, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. My broadcast partner, John Rude. John, let me get underway, because of the summit, which I was talking about just a moment ago, there is a report that Europe could lose out because of North Korea's bonanza. Now, that headline has some meaning. What is the meaning of it, and do you think it's true as it relates to the European Union? Uh, The turnout on the summit was uh, along the lines of what I would have predicted, that it's basically a win-win situation. There's much happening behind the scenes here. Now, it's interesting in terms of the European Union, The European Union has its hands tied in terms of policy. It's going to take some time, but Europe, this is, they move very, very slow in a very slothful manner. Well, let's uh, focus just a moment on Turkey. Tayyip Erdogan getting ready to go to elections. It's going to be a very close, tight election. And, of course, Turkey, though not in the European Union, is a member of NATO, and they have an impact on the European Union. What about Turkey? Well, what's happening in Turkey is a continuation. We have the failed coup attempt in 2016, but note that we've had two presidential elections called early last year and this year. And so I would say that the presidential election happening last year was really a move to strengthen power. It was accelerated because Erdogan was interested to strengthen his power uh, with extended presidential powers, etc. But now we have a new election that's coming up here June 24, and I would classify this more as a uh, possibility that he's working to hold power. The opposition parties together are enough that they would have, could very possibly have a majority. So if Erdogan was re-elected president, and again, this is accelerated for the sole purpose that he can strengthen and hold his power, uh, he would actually get rid of the position of the prime minister, he would issue decrees, he would appoint his own ministers. But the country is still working on this aftermath from the post-coup 2016. They're working with a high inflation rate, Turkish lira has plummeted, 
people are voting on divided lines. It's secular versus religious, nationalist versus uh, Kurdish, Kurdish. We don't know if the elections would actually be fair. And there's actually a new law that has been passed saying that they can count ballots from without the official polling stamp declaring that it's genuine. One more final question I want to bring to your attention, if you will, John. European Union saying that they must create a new world order in order to be able to stop Donald Trump as president of the United States. This, of course, going back to the G7 meeting there in Canada. Quick answer. We're running out of time. What are your thoughts? Yes, the EU system has over and over been, if something uh, is broken, let's completely raise it and start over again. And so it's interesting, this time they're saying that the United States is commanding the premier position in the world politics and economics, therefore it's broken and the uh, European Union has to rise up to be the economic and political uh, force to oppose the United States. The real key word here is political, because the political situation will be what ultimately will be the core of the confederation of nations that we see, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So it's politics and political um, organization and unity which is going to bring forth that uh, coming confederation. So, so far, this has been their, their um, intention. It hasn't gained a lot of traction, but every time we see this, I believe it's notable. Absolutely, John, and this, of course, a precursor to the revival of the Roman Empire, which is what God's Word calls for in the times in which we're living. Very important report, the European Union update given to us by John Rood every single week. John, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to have a prophecy Q&A just for a few moments, the time in this segment before we have to go to the break. So, Jim, talk to me about the question, and I'll see if I can come up with the answer. So why don't we get to those? Donna Crosby sends in a question, Dad. She says, in our most recent family Bible study, the question of how things work during the millennial reign came up. Specifically, we were studying the late chapters of Ezekiel, and it was noticed that in the John MacArthur Study Bible, it is suggested that there will be animal sacrifices at the temple during the 1,000-year period. Is this true? Is it for Jews only or for all of us? Could you explain more on that? Well, Donna, there will be a reinstitution of the temple sacrifices because in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 46, we have 202 detailed verses describing that temple called Messiah's temple or the one that Jesus Christ will build. There has never been a temple and or a tabernacle that would fit the description of Ezekiel 40 to 46. And when you come to chapter 45 of Ezekiel, right in the midst of that description, it's the reinstitution of the sacrificial system. Let me remind you something, Donna. Uh, the sacrifices in the past never took away sin. They never completely took care of the sin problem. They simply were a covering. Remember the day, the most important Jewish holy day, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement or Day of Covering. So they only covered and restored fellowship of the Jewish people who were following the dictates of the Lord. That was their evidence that they were indeed faithful and they were 
children of God. They were, as we would call it today, born again because they were doing what the Lord told them to do. So they were following the sacrificial system to restore fellowship with God himself. But the sacrificial system, since it did not take away sin in the past, it's certainly not going to do it in the future. And there is an aspect of it that is restoring these sacrifices for the opportunity to cover sin again. I'll explain that in just a moment. But the first reason that this is going to happen is in memorial for what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He was the ultimate sacrifice. When you look at Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, you'll understand that he, Jesus Christ, was the ultimate sacrifice. No more goats, no more sheep, no more calves, no more red heifers, etc., etc., But the Lord now wants the Jewish people to look back and rejoice in what they accepted that he was representing or where they failed to, and ultimately later on down the line they came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, we have the communion service, and that is in in memorial of what he's done. He told us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, do this in remembrance of me. We don't re-crucify Jesus Christ. He doesn't shed his blood. He's not stabbed with a spear in the side. Again, it's simply in memorial. And that's what the Jews are going to be doing during that thousand-year millennial period of time. But also remember, Donna, there's going to be some that will come out of the tribulation period. We refer to them as tribulation saints. They will have sustained life for the seven-year period of time or from the time they got saved during the seven years of the tribulation. And they will go with physical bodies into the millennial kingdom. They'll be able to reproduce children, for example, Isaiah 65, 20. But they'll have these physical bodies, and they are going to have a sin nature still. You and I have a sin nature. What do we do? We don't go and reinstitute the sacrificial system right now. But we do claim First John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we will confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what is that doing? That is simply restoring fellowship with him. He doesn't want sin around. We restore fellowship by confessing. And that word confess there means to agree with God about our sin. And so that's the same thing that's going to happen uh, during the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Those with physical bodies who go into the millennial kingdom, by the way, the way they sustain life for a thousand years is they eat of the tree of life, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, and that's how they're able to sustain life for the thousand years. But the sacrificial system we will be reinstituted, not by Jesus Christ. You go to chapter 45, You see, I think it's uh, verses 23 to 28. It talks about the prince will offer the sacrifice. Now, Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. But the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34 and 37, talks about resurrecting King David to be the co-regent with Jesus Christ at the temple. And King David is referred to as the prince, and he's the one that offers those sacrifices. We have three sacrifices there. All of them may be implied that they will be reinstituted as well, but for sure we have the New Year's sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice, and the sacrifices for the Feast of Tabernacles, the seven-day Jewish feast, Feast of Tabernacles. So that's the way it's going to be, Donna. It's God's plan, and he uses it to restore the fellowship of those with physical bodies in the millennial kingdom who have to have that 
fellowship restored. It will not be for us. We will have resurrected, glorified bodies. And so we can't sin ever again, but those entering with physical bodies from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom, uh, they will have to have this sacrificial system reinstituted. Mm. Donna, thank you so much. And it's great to see that your family Bible study is studying eschatology, even uh, in the book of Ezekiel. That is fantastic. Gary Ramsey sends in a question. What would it mean prophetically if Israel attacks Iran, or is it even prophetically possible? Gary, I don't know of any place in the Bible where it says that the United States or Israel will ever attack. I'm simply saying prophetically, it's not in the Word of God. The United States is not even mentioned in the Bible any place. And Israel, of course, is mentioned all over the Bible. Uh, that is the whole concept of looking at uh, eschatology in time events because of the fact that Israel has a plan that God has for them, and they have to be playing it out. But I do not see, and we'll just focus on Israel if you'd like me to, I do not see any place in the Bible that says that Israel would attack Iran. How be it? Should they do it? I can guarantee it will set the stage for the prophecy that is going to take place. And it does say in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5, where the word Persia is used, remember until 1936, that was the name of three countries we have as different names now, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. That was Persia until 1936. Iran still, in fact, speaks the Persian language. But it does say in Ezekiel 38 and verse 5 that Iran or Persia, as it says in the text, are going to be a part of that coalition of nations that will come against Israel. And so if you see Israel attack, and people ask me all the time, do you think they'll attack? Well, I can only tell you what Netanyahu, the prime minister, said, uh, that if uh, the Iranians cross a certain line, in other words, if they have a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, Israel's not going to stand by and get the go-ahead immediately to try to take out uh, that entire infrastructure of the development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Should they do it before the rapture? Uh, well, you know, that's simply going to be setting the stage for them to return an attack and possibly pull this coalition of nations together. What's so interesting to me, Gary, is that all these players that we're talking about were written down by the ancient Jewish prophets 2,500 years ago. We're talking about it today, and it could happen today. <laughs> I believe the rapture is going to happen, though, before all this mess gets underway, and that could happen today for sure. Thank you, Gary, for that question. And folks, if you have a question, you can send your question in to us also. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I'll be talking to Dave James about the Southern Baptist Convention. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., this is the program where we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It's been my pleasure today to be here, and let me just take this opportunity to wish my father a happy Father's Day and all the fathers that are out there. We thank you so much for all that you do in the families, and you know, that's the reason why we do this program. We're hoping to build not only the fathers, but the mothers, the families, and all of those that are listening to our program, and we take this opportunity to teach you about God's prophetic word, what is laid out there, over a third of God's word, giving us information about the future events yet to come. 
In just a moment, we'll be talking to David James. David and I will be having a conversation about the Southern Baptist Convention that just took place. Let me remind you, and also thank you, if you've been praying for mom and dad right now as they have been on the road, they'll be doing about 12 days as they travel along with VCY America, doing these conferences, dad teaching the word of God. We've seen people come to know the Lord as their personal savior. We've seen people enlightened as to where we are in the end times. So thank you for praying for them. If you go to our website, you can take a look at their schedule. Maybe you would like to join in with them. Tomorrow, they'll be in Salina, Kansas. And then on the next day, they'll finish up at the First Southern Baptist Church of Fort Scott, Kansas. While you're on our website, make sure you scroll down on the left-hand side. That's where our poll question is. Click on that poll question. We want to know what you're thinking. This is the poll question for this week. Since the kings of the East are in Bible prophecy, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, and North Korea is a part of those kings of the East, could the Trump Kim Summit have been for setting the stage for these Bible prophecies to be fulfilled. Make sure you go to our website, click on our poll question, and give us your answers. That website again is prophecytoday.com. Well, it's that time of the week where we have a conversation with David James. And uh, these conversations are really helping the body of Christ understand where we are, what's taking place, and how they can have a correct understanding of what the biblical response to these issues should be. This week, David James and I are discussing the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, which took place on Tuesday, which was preceded by the annual two-day pastors conference. This is always an important event because the SBC is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Dave, uh, what's your thoughts on this? Well, that's right. I think it's good that we're taking some time to just cover it uh, briefly this week. The SBC is, is, as you noted, is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. It's the world's largest Baptist denomination, and it's the second largest Christian denomination in the world religion sense of the term in the United States after the Catholic Church. So whatever happens there at the Southern Baptist Convention actually provides guidance for this 15 million member block of U.S. citizens for the coming year, and that represents not only a religious block, but it has historically also represented a large political block as well as because uh, most Southern Baptists tend to be on the conservative side of things and therefore more naturally aligning with the Republican Party, even though it's not primarily a, a political body. Well, in our conversation this week, we're going to discuss a couple of different points. First, Dave, let's talk about the new SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention president, who was elected. And what do you know about him? The newest president just elected this week is J.D. Greer. He is the pastor of a church in North Carolina. The church that he pastors is the Summit Church in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Interestingly, he is actually a Word of Life Bible Institute alumnus who graduated in 1992. Our listeners who have heard our program many times know that I was with Word of Life for 21 years. That was beginning in uh, late 1987. So he graduated actually the year that uh, my wife and I and our family family went to Hungary to be the uh, founding director of the Word of Life Bible Institute in Hungary. So we have the connection there, even though I've never met J.D. Greer. He has that 
background. He's also a graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which he got his the Ph.D. in 1999. And back in those years, I believe that if Paige Patterson wasn't there, he did have an influence there. And Paige Patterson was part of the conservative resurgence in the 1980s and 1990s in the Southern Baptist Convention. So J.D. Greer, actually, I think he represents the newer generation among uh, Southern Baptists. The old guard is kind of uh, passing off the scene as time goes by, as we all know. And so he, he he represents uh, the new generation. He sure does. I talked to a, a few pastors that had been there. They were really excited about the aspect of J.D. Greer being the new Southern Baptist leader. What were some of the major issues connected with this year's Southern Baptist Convention? Well, I would say, as I've done my research, you know, I'm, I don't personally attend a Southern Baptist church. I have attended a Southern Baptist church. In fact, when we lived in Chattanooga for about six months after we came back from Hungary, we attended Brainerd Baptist, which is a Southern Baptist church in Chattanooga. So I'm very familiar with the Southern Baptist conventions. Beyond that, I wasn't there at the convention, and so everything that I know has come from the research that I've done. I was looking at an article on U.S say today, they noted that there were at least three major takeaways from the convention. One was in the wake of the Page-Patterson controversy, and we'll we'll probably talk about that in just a moment. Mm -hmm. But this has to do with the Me Too controversy, the hashtag Me Too controversy, which has rocked Hollywood and with scandals and things where, where women have been historically mistreated, and it's rightfully so that we should be discussing that. But it seems that Page Patterson got caught up in the wake of that, and he was slated to be a primary speaker, one of the main keynote speakers at the convention, and he ended up having to back out of that altogether. And so that has been an issue. Another has been Russell Moore, who is in sort of a political and ethics wing of the Southern Baptist Convention and kind of an interface between the Southern Baptist and, and politics in the United States. Even though many may disagree with his approach, they still support him. And, and actually, there was some uh, division as to whether Russell Moore maybe should be the next president or J.D. Greer. And of course, like we said, J.D. Greer uh, got that. And then another uh, major area was Vice President Mike Pence uh, spoke at the convention, and that was uh, received uh, well by many at the convention. But another issue was that uh, some people saw it as taking the convention in too much of a political direction. And in fact, uh, J.D. Greer, after Mike Pence spoke, tweeted the following. He said, I know that's uh, meaning Mike Pence's speech. He said, I know that sent a terribly mixed signal. We are grateful for civic leaders who want to speak to our convention, but make no mistake about it, our identity is in the gospel and our unity is in the Great Commission. And I would have to say, I appreciate that response by J.D. Mm. Greer. I don't think maybe he could have taken a little bit different tone because I think it perhaps made uh, Mike Pence look a little bad. But the other thing is, I think there has been too much of a 
connection between the political right and uh, the religious right, and that historically has not ended well. Certainly, Paige Patterson, whom you know, uh, I know, Dr. DeYoung knows very well, being forced to step down as the president of the Southwestern Theological Seminary has been a, a major issue of the past few weeks. Do you think in the last couple of years there have been a lot of knee-jerk reactions within the hierarchy of the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, it seems that there have been, and I think this is one of the things that they're trying to deal with. They're trying to find some balance, and I think this is one of the things that came out of the convention, because the decision to have Paige Patterson step down as the president of Southwestern there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area actually was done by not even the full board of trustees, as I understand. It was a few of the trustees, and it was while he was out of the country. And in fact, at the convention, as I understand, Understand that there was a resolution put forth to ask those trustees involved with that to step down. So I think, you know, there always needs to be balance, and even the things that he said and did, and, and the Southern Baptist Convention in general trying to deal with things from their past, the things that he was really brought down for were things that happened uh, 20 to 30 years ago, statements that he made, and I think, you know, you and I both know, we've been in the ministry for a long time, as, as your dad Dr. DeYoung, there are things that we might have said or phrased in a certain way 20 or 30 years ago that in today's not only theological climate, but in a particular social climate that we're living in and a cultural climate, we might phrase differently. It doesn't necessarily mean that our views have changed. It doesn't mean that we were heretics in the past and we've, you know, uh, we've, uh, we've moved on to a different position, but it means that we're more sensitive to what's going on in the culture. And I think this is what happened to Paige Patterson, and he just ended up being a casualty of the Me Too movement. It does look like, and even I haven't heard, Beth Moore had been nominated to feel that as a as a knee-jerk I think reaction to try to take care of the Me Too movement and some of the other decisions that they have made what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing the Southern Baptist Convention in the coming year well, I found on another website someone who is in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I would also say, too, I have been in contact and, and uh, in preparation for our discussion today, I've been in contact with someone who actually, in and of their own right, has a, a very high-profile ministry and who spoke at the uh, convention. I'm not at liberty to s- share who that was, and, and it's really irrelevant, but in doing the research and looking at uh, some of the things that have been said by those who were at the convention. One of the things was there is a theological fault line in the Reformed versus Baptistic movement. There's a strong movement within the Southern Baptist Convention, and not just in the Southern Baptist Convention, I would say in conservative evangelicalism as a whole, to try to move evangelicalism to a five-point Calvinist uh, viewpoint. And uh, we can talk about that in in just a moment. And the second was that there's a church planting versus church strengthening issue where there has historically been, within the Southern Baptist Convention, a, a real emphasis on evangelism, and now there is more an emphasis on trying to grow megachurches. There's also the issue between the old guard and the new guard, even in the... Not 
not just among the leadership, but in the congregations where you have the millennials versus the, the baby boomers and in between the Gen X group. So moving toward a more digital way of dealing with uh, ministry. There's also uh, issues regarding how you support missions. The Southern Baptist Convention has the Lottie Moon offering where um, missionaries are paid a salary versus faith promise. And then there's also, at the average church size, uh, even though there's a lot of emphasis on success and megachurches, the average SBC church is actually only 145 members, whereas there are some multi-thousand member churches. And so this is also a major issue in the SBC convention. Well, we talked about uh, one of the issues being the Reformed versus the Baptistic theology. Let's talk about that just a little bit further, and why is this such a big issue? Well, I think it's a big issue when it comes down to evangelism and, as I mentioned, the five-point Calvinism sweeping through evangelicalism. And I I think it comes down to this. According to five-point Calvinist theology, uh, a five-point Calvinist cannot say, God loves you and Christ died for you, because they believe that uh, God only uh, primarily loves the elect and Christ only died for the elect, and it has tremendous impact on how the, uh, the gospel is presented and how we do evangelism. This leads to the question I want to wrap up with today. Where does the Southern Baptist Convention stand in relation to its support for Israel? Well, I think that's a very important question because you and I and your dad and and ministries like ours, we stand uh, in support of the nation of Israel. And going back to 2016, uh, they made some resolutions, the Southern Baptist Convention made some resolutions at their annual convention that they would stand with the nation of Israel, that they did. Israel does have a right to exist. So I'm, I'm very happy with that particular stance of the SBC. Well, very good, Dave. Thank you so much. Very important information for us to have and the body of Christ to have as we're making decisions every day and how an organization, really, as we look at their theology and even their eschatology, as Dad always says, your eschatology determines your theology. Dave, we're going to have more on this conversation next week with Dr. DeYoung when he's back in, in the studio with us. Thank you so much, brother, for taking the time this week. Glad to do it. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. DeYoung will take a look at the book where he takes everything and brings it all together. Straight ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you.
Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today. For us to take a look at the book. Before I do that, I want to thank Jim Jr. for participating with us here on this broadcast. So great to have a son in the ministry with you, one who's capable of coming to this microphones and carrying on the broadcast, especially when we're in such a tight schedule with the VCY America radio rallies. Do pray for us. We'll be in Sioux Falls, South Dakota on Sunday, and then we're going to be continuing on until next Wednesday. We do need your prayer. And by the way, I want to tell Jim, Jim, happy birthday, son. Boy, what a privilege to have a son who is not only a great partner in our ministry, but one who has a great family and is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's now get to the reports from our broadcast partners. These were great reports. We had broadcast partners scattered all over the world. They gave us the latest information and insight into what is going on. We need this information for the purpose of understanding where we are in God's plan for the end times. If you missed any of my conversations with my broadcast partners, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and may I suggest you tell a friend, those of your friends who are studying the Word of God, especially Bible prophecy, need to have the insight from these men that join us on a weekly basis right here on Prophecy Today. Again, the way you can listen to what these conversations were, go to my website, prophecytoday.com, go to PTRN. Prophecy Today Radio Network. Now let me go through, if you will, what my conversations were, and then I want to give a prophetic perspective to the current events, the reports from these men. We talked with Ken Timmerman, and he revealed to us a number of items that we could take time to talk about, but I thought most important was the Israeli F-35 stealth jet fighters able to enter the Iranian airspace and then lock on to targets there. Now, the number one enemy for the Jewish state of Israel is Iran. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has made the statement that if need be, Israel can go after Iran in their own nation. They're in Tehran, but they can deal with them there in Syria as well. We know that Iran is going to be a major player. The Bible tells us that 
There is an end-time scenario about the alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. That's found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel, chapter 11. In Ezekiel 38, when we go to verse 5, we see the name Persia. That's the biblical name for modern-day Iran. They are a very dangerous nation right now as an Islamic Republic. If they become nuclear-powered, they will be worse than they are now. And that is the prophetic perspective on Iran and the possibility of a fight between Israel fighting for its life against an attack by the Iranians. Speaking of Israel, David Dolan came to this microphone and gave us his Middle East news update. Our topic of discussion began with the evacuation of a Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria. This, by the way, the settlers said, could lead to a war. Well, what happened this week was similar to the 2005 evacuation of the Jewish settlement located there in the Gaza Strip. It happens today, and these settlers say a possible civil war could take place. You know, there is going to be a second Jewish state in the future, according to Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15 to 23. If you'll study it, you'll see one stick has its name Judah, the other Israel. That will be the two states in the future, only coming back together when the return of Jesus Christ takes place. Stage is set for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon, a report on the Trump-Kim summit and the hope for the future as it relates to North Korea and its relationship to the United States. When you look for Bible prophecy and try to find North Korea, it's found in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. They will be a member of the kings of the east that are the only ones alive, the eastern nations, only ones alive when Jesus Christ comes back because by that time, half of the earth's population will have been destroyed. They'll be the ones gathering at Jerusalem at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us. We talked about the Turkish election upcoming. Turkey is not a member state of the European Union. They want to be. They are a member of NATO. And Tayyip Erdogan is in a fight for his political life, looking at a very tight race in order to be victorious. Turkey, again, is a major player in the alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. That's Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 2 and 6. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. This nation must be Islamic and have a desire to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. These elections upcoming in a couple of days are key for the scenario for Turkey in the end times. And David James and Jimmy had a conversation about the Southern Baptist Convention. Looks like there are some problems. In fact, it looks like the elite leadership is against those in the pew those who are Christians in the churches. Second Timothy chapter 3 talks about the last days and those perilous times will include those who are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. 
Now, we're not attacking the Southern Baptist Convention except for those who want to go away from the Word of God. The prophetic scenario will be played out according to Second Timothy chapter 3, and we pray that all of those in the pew in Southern Baptist churches will rise up against the leadership who wants to take the Southern Baptist Convention a different direction. And that is my prophetic perspective on the current events happening in this world reported by our broadcast partners earlier on this broadcast. I've got to say every single report is evidence of the fact that the next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church, could take place at any moment. And I mean right now. And having said that, basically, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 